It's December 30th, 2015. This is Idle Thumbs 243. I'm Chris Remo. I'm Jake Rodkin. Happy New Year! Oh, thanks, Chris. Oh, you're welcome, Jake. You know what I've always wanted for New Year's? Uh, because it's apparently a gift-giving holiday in the world of... You know what I've always wanted for Dishonored, <laughs> for Dishonored New, New Year's? <laughs> Celebrated, as we know, on December 30th. Yes. Uh, 2015 only. This is year. this is truly a Dishonored New Year's in that we do not have a regular episode of Idle Thumbs. Yeah. But in, in the grand tradition of Dishonored New Year's, instead we're sharing some fond memories and experiences of our friends the other podcast hosts of the Idol <laughs> Network. It's a very specific holiday. Mm-hmm. Um, no, it's true. So, yeah, yeah, we have. Uh, hopefully, if if this all ends, uh, if this all has worked, um, by the time you're hearing this, uh, we will have half a dozen different podcasts represented on this network. I'm sorry, on this, uh, we have more than that on the network, but on this episode, uh, which is pretty crazy. Um, it's weird that we have we host this many shows at this point on idlethumbs.net, but we apparently do, and you will hear from a bunch of them soon. Now, now, basically. wow, yeah, I yes. mean, effectively now. Uh, so, it, should we, should, what does that even mean? I mean, like you know, within like minutes or seconds. What it means is that this episode of Idle Thumbs, because it is not a full episode, we 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 it's a clip show. It is a clip show. Let's, okay, let's yeah, let's just let's to- call it what it is. We. Everyone's out of town for the holidays, but we've got a ton of shows on the network that we like listening to and thought maybe you would enjoy hearing some samples of them. So we asked the hosts of a bunch of shows to just pick a few minutes worth of content from a recent episode to share out this week. Yep. So each of these is probably be roughly 10 minutes or so um, of each of these podcasts, enough to have kind of a, you know, like sense of the of a full conversation. Uh, and so if you are curious what you will be hearing over the course of this episode, um, it will hopefully be from Three Moves Ahead, Idle Weekend, Terminal 7, Esports Today, Designer Notes, and The Idle Book Club. Shocking reveal at the end there. <laughs> yes. Yeah, stick around to hear what's going on with that. You can find all of these shows at idlethumbs.net slash shows. So we'll start with Three Moves Ahead. Yeah. So uh, this is from episode 302 of Three Moves Ahead, the 4X genre. Um, this has the show host, Rob Zachney, who is now all over our network, and uh, Three Moves Ahead founder, Troy Goodfellow, talking kind of about falling out of love with 4X strategy games. And uh, it also features special guest Austin Walker, who you probably know from the Giant Bomb Crew and the Giant Beast Cast podcast. Enjoy the I, finest strategy game podcast. I will, Chris. I know you My sort of relationship with 4X games um, dates back right to my beginning you know, gamer DNA. These are things that I've, I've loved all the way through. I've... At, you know, various times I idolized people like Sid Meier's and uh, Brian Reynolds and Soren. And, you know, I, I've developed a relationship with John Schaefer. So Siv has just been like this, this thing that I've, I've really gravitated to. Um, but lately I have been, um, been downloading games. So, uh, I guess Warlock, the Warlock series, Endless Legend, I sort of, sort of came up and I've just bounced off of them. And, the conversation that we had is, is I likened um, a 4X game or, or this relationship or part of a 4X game 
is um, a lot like when you make a Dungeons & Dragons character. So when you make a Dungeons & Dragons character, I think a large amount of the enjoyment uh, comes about dreaming about the potential. You make your your level one rogue and you give him some skills and you pick the race. Um, but what you're secretly thinking about, and actually not so secretly thinking about is, well, at level eight, I'll be able to pick this. At level 16, I'll get this. Mm -hmm. It's this like mental, this mental trick that we tell ourselves. This is like eternally delayed gratification. It's because it, we know that it's never going to get to level 16. I know that this is, that this is just <laughs> never going to happen. So there's this weird self-flagellation that goes on, but it's, it's, it's it's generally enjoyable, and I think with 4X games, um, some of it's the same thing. It's I think I'm rarely excited about the stuff that I'm doing, but I'm excited about the stuff that it's the the promise of what's going to happen. Twenty five turns, a hundred turns from from when you do those little baby steps don't matter. Uh, I find them insignificant. All of a sudden, I just realized this has started to sound like a Werner Herzog. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, you just inexorably move one more turn towards an increasingly certain future. <laughs> um, but but that, so yeah, so what I mean is that like even those like lofty goals of the wonder, I think often feel anticlimactic. And so what I think is sort of this enormity that I think of a four X game is actually in in some cases seemingly increasingly so a little bit more of this like an illusion of progress instead of an a feeling of actual progress. And what I mean is like, you're making decisions that, um, feel that have consequence and that sort of change the, the, the future. And what's been happening is I think I've become a little bit more sensitive as I've made free to play stuff of like Skinner box type things. And mm. with some of these more, some of the games lately, I've been bouncing off of them because it just feels that the pacing of those little moments are, is off or they're not, they're not, a meaningful enough. And I, and I, and I just, I spend too long feeling like I'm not making important or critical decisions. And it just becomes, it feels obvious and a chore. And, and it, and I, and it feels like this is a problem that I've already solved. You know, I've already built this engine before in a mm -hmm. dozen games. So, I mean, this, that actually push it. Like there's a number of questions I have with that. First of all, like is part of it the fact that there's a lot of people working within the genre right now who I think are, uh, no, I don't want to call it like a B team situation, but there's a lot of people making these games like right now. I feel like uh, more than perhaps in the past, there's there's a lot of forexes we're, we're getting hit with. I'm seeing a lot of different takes on the genre. Um, and once you start seeing that happen more and more, and it's no longer a situation of like, okay, well, here's the new Civ, first new Civ in, in like three or four years. Um, once that's no longer happening, it stops being a special event. You start seeing like, okay, this is the forex of the spring. This is the forex of the summer. Right. This is the forex of the fall. You start seeing the similarities uh, a lot, and I think the once they start feeling like exercises in just sort of genre design and no longer like these special events that are returned to a fond past experience. Do you think that's that's sort of playing into it at all? That you've we've been to this dance too many times at this point. I think possibly, I think, I think, I think, you know, you can only read a mystery novel once before you know the answer. And I think that, um, a lot of the problems, a lot of the, a lot of the new games end up being, you know, retellings of the same mystery. Well, that's and, certainly true. Yeah. And, and so, and so, um, when I, when I approach a new game and I see that, you know, there's the granary equivalent or there's the, mm -hmm. 
there's the whatever is I, is I sort of understand about, well, okay, you got to get population and you're going to, you're going to, and, 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 and at most, at most, I think you, I find myself, um, trying to categorize or sort of put things into buckets. And I can say like, oh, well, this is a 4X game where you're trying to create specialized cities. Or this is one where you're trying to create um, more, more, more generalized independent uh, uh, industry hubs, right? Like, like there's sort of, there's sort of, I think, I think a dichotomy there, or at least there's a false right. dichotomy. And, and, and then that sort of dictates the next, the next sort of, few logical steps. I was going to push back against that, the mystery yeah. uh, analogy mm-hmm. that you were going to use until you got to that last little bit there where where this notion of like, oh, I understand this game now and, mm-hmm. and I get it and now I want to move on to something new. I'm so familiar with that feeling. And it's hard for me to know as a critic whether that's something that's that's uh, part of, oh, I have to play all these games quickly and move on to the next thing. Or if that is just this actual burnout around around uh, being subsumed in so many games of the same type and, and playing and replaying so many 4X games where the feeling of understanding what's at what's on the table and like once I understand where all the moving pieces are, I'm not interested in, in reconfiguring them again and again and again in most cases. I'm interested in seeing some some other completely new table with completely with completely different parts and, and I'm always frustrated when I find, oh no, these are the same parts again. Uh, so in a sense, it's almost like not like I'm I'm burnt out on the single mystery novel that I'm rereading. It's that I'm burning out on the conventions of the mystery genre, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, okay, the the killer is always this. Like, you know, this mm-hmm. is this sort of crime story. Um, and and yeah, I don't know. I don't know if the solution is a break or what. Ah, I feel so informed about strategy games. Ah, oh, I knew you were going to come back with a canned return. <laughs> Ah, oh, hello there. What else is there to do? I, it's a clip. You got to do the clip thing. I, I don't know what the options are, Jake. <laughs> um, so uh, up next, we have uh, a clip from Idle Weekend. Um, this was a clip that was suggested by Danielle, actually. And it is um, it features uh, co-hosts Danielle Riendo and Rob Zachney talking about Rob's um, bizarre and fascinating obsession with the CBS crime drama limitless okay which uh jake i don't know if you've heard this yet um but it's a it's a pretty great example of the uh of when they dip into non-game talk a cool thing about idle weekend that has just organically happened is that obviously the bulk of it is is video game talk but they also spend a fair amount of time each episode just talking about pop culture and other entertainment that they're into and this here is rob zachney kind of suffering some kind of existential crisis about whether what it means that he is so into this show limitless and whether it's good or not, because he cannot figure it out. All right. Yeah. I'm going to talk about something that, okay, I need your help and I need listeners okay. help basically okay. to figure out if I lost my mind. Uh, this is, this is a part of the show where like, I think in our, in our idealized vision of this show, this is where we'll be talking about like, Oh, well, which David Foster Wallace novel are you, are you reading? Uh, well, I'm reading, I, I'm reading, or, you know, well, I just finished gravity's rainbow. And oh, uh, I'm going to Citizen Kane revival. But here's what I've been actually doing uh, this <laughs> this week. Uh, I kind of got a new show called Limitless. Sure. Which is, it is literally, like, the, the entire idea behind the show. And I swear to God, somebody actually, like, probably used this phrase when they're pitching it. <laughs> is, it's Andy Dwyer from Parks and Rec 
as a crime-solving super genius. Perfect. Like, they even found an actor that's, like, kind of sounds like him, kind of looks <laughs> like him. Uh, but it's about this kind of, like, the, this kind of ne'er-do-well schlub who, if you know the movie Limitless, uh, there's this pill that sort of uses all the parts of your brain you never use and turns you into a super genius. Okay, Good. so the series yep. starts, <laughs> and it's totally by-the-numbers crap, right? Like, he's sure. kind of in a dead-end life. Uh, he gets the pill. Uh, he turns into a genius and is recruited by the FBI to solve, guess what, a case of the week. Uh, and Perfect. he's paired with a gorgeous female partner who doesn't know what to make of his strange, uh, you know, his, his strange, like, laid-back ways. <laughs> So it started out pretty dire. Like it wasn't it, it wasn't good and like I, I sort of quit watching for a couple of weeks. I've gone back and for the last like six or seven episodes, the show has gotten really weird, but in a way that I find really enticing. And I'm not sure it's good, but I feel like it might be good. I'm curious to hear what people think about this. Because the show now is changing style and tone week to week. Uh like direction, editing. Uh, like just basic elements of storytelling. It's completely changing week after week. So one episode was told uh, half in almost cartoon form uh, with animated maps and, and awesome. characters, uh, like, like clutch cargo elements tossed in almost. Uh, another episode was basically uh, cribbing Ferris Bueller's day off, like shot for shot uh, and, and trying to make a, make a case of the week that plays out like, um, the, the plays that like Ferris Bueller's Day Off. But what's, what's, what's kind of interesting in all of this is it's become one of these shows that I don't know what I'm getting each, each time I tune in. Sure. It's, it's a different experience. Uh, and the other cool thing that's starting to happen is um, there is this element, like the show's really lighthearted and fun, uh, which, which I find really enticing. But there is this other element of <laughs> this guy's character, Brian Finch, is slowly making everyone around him go crazy. And it's sort of for laughs, but but also not. Because you were seeing characters who at the start of the series were super confident and super competent. And like they were trained FBI agents and they all believed you know, they all they all knew what they knew and uh they they, they trusted in themselves. And now, you know, here halfway through the season, they're all working day after day with this guy who takes a pill and turns into the super genius who's miles ahead of you. Uh, he has reached the end of the conversation before you've, before you've begun it. And it's slowly making all these characters get a little squirrely and start to crumble uh, in these interesting ways. And it's, it's kind of funny, but it's also kind of troubling. Uh, and so it's like, it is a show that on the one hand is such a, such a trifle. It's so trivial uh, <laughs> that I was, I'm like, this can't possibly be good. And yet, it has become one of the absolute highlights of my week, watching where this show is going to go next. Uh, so, I guess that that's my limited endorsement. Uh, I need more people. It's a limited endorsement. <laughs> well, I need I need more people. <laughs> I need more people to sample this. Okay. And let me know whether I've completely lost it, uh, or whether the show's truly as like weirdly creative and brilliant as as I think it might be. Uh, but yeah, so I've, I have somehow got addicted to what looked like one of the lamest shows on TV at the start of this fall. I, okay, seriously, that sounds like something I would love and enjoy, not only for being weird and creative, but the whole, so it, 
weird thing about me. I used to, uh, I was in a relationship with a woman who was a, uh, sort of a super genius, uh, for a, a chunk of my life for like four years. Right, right. No, there's, we I made Doogie Howser like, jokes. Yeah. yeah. We made a lot of Doogie Howser jokes. I mean, this woman was, you know, 12 when she went to college, 16 when she went to medical school, full doctor by 20, musician, doctor, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It was kind of hilarious. I genuinely am interested in any entertainment that sort of depicts normal people's struggles when it comes to understanding a genius in their everyday life. It's it's sort of a thing that I really always kind of want to read more about or hear more about, even though I'm not in that situation anymore. It's it's sort of a fascinating problem to have. Did you actually. ever find it like confidence affecting? Oh, absolutely. No question. <laughs> I have I have noticed <laughs> definitely a little bit uh, in my relationship because because my partner is uh, also brilliant uh, sure, probably yeah. probably a fair bit smarter than I am not not Doogie Hauser like crazy brilliant but like <laughs> but you know uh, yeah. par- particle physicist brilliant uh, uh, that's but, a, that is amazing yes <laughs> but the thing I have sometimes noticed uh, about that is uh, it, it's sort of um, what is it is it the, the principle, the, the Ricardian principle in economics, right, of, like, mm. marginal efficiency, where, like, yes. we can both do the same job, but you're better at it, so I'm going to yep. let you do it, and I'll focus on what I'm good at. But the problem is, in a relationship <laughs> like that, the problem is your partner's pretty much better at everything. Yep. And so, like, I sometimes have to push back against this this uh, instinct I have, which is to slowly, like, defer more and more, because, well, you're probably right, you're, you're, you're smarter than I am, or I'll just let you take care of that, because I'll probably do a crappier job than you would. Uh, and I have to constantly like guard against that because uh, yes. I, you know, I, I, I don't want to become this weird like passenger uh, in a relationship. But it's it's definitely a weird thing uh, where someone is is noticeably faster uh, than you just repeatedly, and you just sort of have to slowly live with that fact. It is, and it, and it's a really fascinating thing. This particular person, I won't go on and on about this by any means, but this particular person sort of was very modest, at least most of the time, about their abilities and sort of described it as, as sort of feeling like they had a, a different sort of size computer or something in, mm-hmm. in the room, that sort of thing. It's it's so weird and so interesting. And yeah, okay, I, I want to watch Limitless now. I Yeah, <laughs> I, okay, me. then, yes. You need to watch <laughs> Limitless. I need more people to watching Limitless because I yes. need to know if I've lost it. So, yes, everyone watching <laughs> Limitless, get back to me. <laughs> that sounds really good. What are you into this week? Ha ha ha. Oh, Christ. I don't know. You fucking come up with something better. Ha ha! I don't know. What? Yeah. Hey. Hello. Hey there. It's now Idle Thumbs again and not Idle Weekend. Oh, man. Wow. Weird. Uh, so, uh, let's see. What do we have next? Um, let's say Terminal 7. It's I Terminal 7. I what order I said any of these in. Nels Anderson. Yes. Uh, so, um, here we have a clip from Terminal 7, episode 29 out-of-work intellectual camp. We should probably mention what Terminal 7 is because it is probably less oh, known yeah, to Idle sure. Thumbs listeners than either of the preceding two podcasts. Yes. Terminal 7 is a podcast about the card game Netrunner. Yes. Um, is it is this full name Android Netrunner? I think it is. Okay, it better be. Um, <laughs> which, I don't know, it's a pretty special interest podcast, but... Uh, Whenever I occasionally dip my toe into it, I, I enjoy it. I mostly enjoy it for its episode title names, which are like Idle Thumbs episode title names, but even kind of more gross and lascivious because the host is Nels Anderson. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Nels, um, Nels Anderson and Jesse Turner. Yes. But yes, Nels is responsible for that, I assume. Yeah. Who knows? So this episode is probably a good um, a, a good introductory episode because the, the clip here features 
uh, a discussion with Zoe Robinson, who's the art director on Netrunner at Fantasy Flight Games, and she talks a bit about the uh, a new creative process that they've been using to design their cards for the last year or so. Um, That's to, awesome. To positive effect, yeah. So uh, enjoy this discussion. So uh, Netrunner's kind of kind of a unique animal because um, we mesh the visuals and the a lot of the world building is done through the visuals. Right. As you guys mm-hmm. know. Uh, yeah, because there isn't, there isn't this big, like, established other media franchise that exists in, like, digital games or movies or whatever. Like, basically, all the, you know, world building of Netrunner, I mean, there's, like, a little bit from the original board game, but at this point, like, it's almost all on the cards now, It's all through basically. the cards, yes. Which is so much fun. Because right. the Netrunner fandom is so sharp. It's such an intelligent, <laughs> it's such an intelligent fandom. So it is really fun to be like, "Ooh, Easter egg! Let's put it in here!" Like to just yeah, sort of that, lay that, these little that constantly blows everyone's yeah. minds when they see like characters and other cards or things like that. Yeah. Well, there was something I, I can't remember if we mentioned this on the last cast or not. Um, there was on the alt art for the uh, private security force. Right. Mm-hmm, there mm-hmm. was one of one of the um, one of the private security force people. Uh, had guess. like a very yes, had like a very small logo on their shoulder, and then when in order and chaos, there was a big copy of that logo like smashed on the side of the Argus building. It's like, oh wait a minute, that's because those guys are. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> yep, we have so much fun. So so basically, and this is like it takes a little bit of time. So I think at first execs were like, oh, that's a lot of man hours, but it's it's turned out so well. So initially, what we did was the um, the devs. So the uh, made the mechanics, came up with concepts, uh, wrote general art descriptions. Um, I would edit them to make make sure that they would make sense to artists, and you know that they wouldn't be because it's hard to think visually if you're a math guy, right? Like right. not not everybody, not everyone, unless you have your fingers in art all the time. It's hard to understand what's predict what's going to make a good visual. Yeah. Or not. Um, or what's too complicated or what's redundant or what's, uh, so I used to just sort of edit them and we'd, we'd send them out to artists and kind of see what we'd get, uh, what we've started doing. And the first thing we really did, it was, was the box before Sansan, but Sansan was when we sort of really figured out the system and our stride and, and, and how that was going to work. So that's another reason why I'm so excited for, you know, the, the subsequent packs to come out and people to see what's going on. So what we do is just when there's the raw mechanics, we'll have what we call the concepting meeting and the story team will get together, which is, um, Lucas, Damon, Dan Clark, um, a woman named Katrina Ostrander, who's our, She's sort of the the lore keeper. Mm. She, you know, she keeps our, you know, internal wiki up to date. She edits, you know, our, you know, the, she has all the sources from like the books. She she knows everything, right? Right. Um and and me. So those those five of us will sit down in a room and we'll say this mechanic does this. This is what I'm thinking about. And we'll go through card by card by card. Um having previously figured out what the themes of each pack are going to be like mm-hmm. what the overarching ideas and just sort of general lore, 
and we'll take the mechanic and we'll sort of talk out how that might visually manifest. Like what, what does that look like? What does that mechanic look like? Right. Um, and then we'll go away and everyone sort of has a group that of the stuff we've decided on, uh, we'll write out that description, that brief, uh, come back, groom it, make sure everyone's happy with everything. And those are the, the, the sort of the text briefs that I have that I'll give out to artists. So that's mm. usually about 120 to 130 at a time. Right. So we, so you we basically, commission... Yeah, so you guys will plan out, like, do that kind of planning for an entire cycle of cards, and then yes. that once all that's put together, that's when it gets dispatched to all the freelancers. Yes, yep. Got it. So, so we do, like, a whole, a whole cycle at one time. And we'll dispatch to freelance. You know, I'll I'll make. Um, I I have a bunch of artists that I work with. We have a database with hundreds of artists, mm. and um, and then I will also be scouting for people, like scouring the internet for people. Oh, who, that's who cool. Would work for yeah, yeah. It's it's very fun. Um, and so I will come up with like my dream team, like who who I want to be, you know, stylistically, and who I think sort of feels like they could get it. Right. Um. Oh, interesting. I make, I make a big list of those people and send them all an email saying like, hey, this is my timeline. This is how much I can pay you per per card, per illustration. What's your uh, availability? Sort of yeah, yeah, what's your... I'd love to have you paint this. This is what it's about. Um, if you, like, if you're interested, let me know how many pieces you can do in that timeline comfortably. Mm. And so you're also I'll a recruiter get, as well. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, and then you get a response back on that. Like, oh, I'd love to. I can get, you know, I can do three cards. I can do one card. I can do, you know. And so I, this last cycle, I, uh, I sent an email out to 150 artists. Um, and that's more than one artist per card. <laughs> right. And I got 70, 80 responses back. Okay. Um, so then you have so basically that that lets you know you have a certain number of artists that can take a certain amount of cards. Right. Then you have you know the content of each of the card, and every artist has a specialty, right? Like they could be good people, or they're good at environments, or what they're really good at is tech, or mm. you know. And then you have the cyberspace angle, like this person right. is awesome at this kind of cyberspace. Um, so. It becomes a big Sudoku game, huge, huge, complicated Sudoku game, <laughs> right? Where you have to figure out, like, play to everybody's strengths, make sure nobody's overloaded, but everyone who asks for a piece gets one, it, and it takes forever. <laughs> Man, do you just have like a giant, like, basically crazy serial killer wall where yeah. it's like cards <laughs> and strings yeah. and like scribbled notes? It's a beautiful mind. It's a- <laughs> Better, I have a database. <laughs> oh man, okay, hardcore. Well, at least you got the an actual tool to solve that problem. <laughs> yes, <laughs> some analog yeah, exactly. shed <laughs> behind the office. Exactly. Um, yeah, because I mean, just even though obviously, I, I, oh sorry, keep going. I used to be back in the day. We'd do it by spreadsheets, or I, I would do it by spreadsheets because it was just right. Me. Um, so yeah, the whole Sudoku, which basically you set aside a day to sit there and like agonize over who's getting what because that's going to be what sets yourself up as an art director if your next month is going to be awesome or 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 kind of hellish nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> right <laughs> so then people send back sketches 
and um, I'll send back. Because a- after this point, the rest of the story team, like, they're off doing their, their mechanics thing. Right. Like, the, now, now it's sort of just, just, just me. Um, so sketches, uh, you know, make sure it's, you want to make sure that it's in line with what everyone had talked about. That you know it it's, it fits the IP that that the composition is going to be successful that it works in the card layout all those kind of things that the story is going to read at size it's so tiny right um, then once you approve that then people take things to finals so when they go to finals if I like it like if I don't like it then I send back notes and you know they revise mm-hmm. um, and if I like it then I bring it to my manager and he goes through it. And like having an extra pair of eyes on a piece of art is just so, so helpful. Like half a, a big part of my job as an art director is just to be that extra pair of eyes and be like, Ooh, did you, can you double check that anatomy for me? Cause it just, mm. and the artist would be like, Oh yeah. Wow. I didn't see that. Yes. Um, and, and my manager does the same thing for me. Right. Um, stuff that I see, like he'll see stuff that I just didn't even notice because I'd been staring at it for way too long. Um, so once he approves things, then they're approved. And then it goes off into layout lands where the graphic designers lay things out. And, and um, flavor text is done generally by um, Lucas Damon and Dan. Mm. Uh, Dan Clark. I don't know. Do you guys have, do you guys know Dan Clark at all? Do you know Dan? Not really. He's fabulous. He's wonderful. Um, he did he did work on the original board game, right? He worked on the original board game. This, this yeah. is the guru lore we've been told. told. Yeah, yeah. He's yeah. the sort of the IP creator. Right. Cool. Um, he does a lot, a lot of the flavor texts. A lot. That's of it because because that building. flavor text is on fire. Everybody yeah. loves that stuff. <laughs> it's so yeah. good. Yeah. It's really good. And sometimes there'll be a piece of art, like I just got a piece of art and it was, there's sort of a a language barrier problem. Like Mm. I asked for something, but I used a figure of speech that was misinterpreted in a way that was just bizarre, but it was so weird that I just, it was too awesome not to keep. Right. It it was a happy accident. (laughs) Nice. Yeah. So I was like, this is really bizarre, but I really want to keep it. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> and awesome. so he's like, ah, we'll fix it in flavor text, right? Like, right. That's <laughs> good. It has a, it has a we'll, final we'll, stop. We'll fix it in post. post. Don't worry about post it. Post is flavor, <laughs> right. flavor text. is the post of card games. Right. <laughs> Cyber crazy shit happened. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Probably. Cyber lords, I think. Where they were designed. They were designed on a card successfully and creatively. Um, all right. What else do we have here? So, um, <laughs> eh, who knows? So, uh, okay. So esports today, another pretty new show. This also features, uh, Rob Zachney, now the host of half of the, literally half of the shows being featured in this clip show hosted by Rob Zachney. Anyway, one of them is also esports today in which he and Andrew Gruen every week recap what has been going on in the world of professional and competitive gaming and uh in this clip they are joined by alan nahaz bester um also a professor of economics actually um not really super relevantly to this discussion but no but apparently we host a bunch of awesome podcasts i know yeah for okay. sure so uh so they uh he he joined up on the show to talk about the volatility of dota and what makes a great dota 2 team so 
Enjoy this informed chat. <laughs> you know, you see this a lot in other sports that even relatively good teams, uh, when if the Miami Heat don't win a title with LeBron James and Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh in their second or third year together, that team probably isn't together for longer than that three-year period. So, again, I think in Dota, you're going to see a lot of this, especially over the first year or maybe 18 months that we have a major system. You're going to see a lot of teams get together and not quite reach that summit of success and and not stay together. That was the the big question, for example, that I had about Secret going into this tournament. I thought this Secret squad, I was on record saying this at ESL, I thought this Secret squad had as high a ceiling as the last Secret Squad did over the summer, maybe even a little higher. My -hmm. big question was, were they going to stay together long enough to reach that potential? And it looks like now they're going to. Yeah, absolutely. And this is like something that has been kind of a recurring theme in the Dota world. We all kind of wonder about it because we have these sort of like grand experiments that we get to watch play out. So like one of the great examples is uh, is Navi. They stuck together for a little while and they had a, a lot of success in a short period of time or a long period of time. But then it's almost like they stuck together too long and now like that organization almost feels like kind of hobbled on their dota team at least and then on the flip side of that you have the exact opposite example where you have evil geniuses which wins the biggest prize pool in the world and all of a sudden starts tweaking with their roster right away and i and i think we're all kind of we were all kind of watching to see like how does how does uh did i say seem secret or evil genius i meant to say evil geniuses EG, yeah. say EG. okay so eg uh and we we're all kind of wa- uh, watching to see like how this tweaking of their lineup actually would go and i think we're all still kind of like wondering if that has paid off at this point well, we want like an we want like a verdict of, of how that tweaking of their lineup is going to pay off but so far we've got like a lot of like third place finishes from them and i'm wondering from you like should we be in awe of evil genius's ability to still stay relevant and still be a third place or a top three finisher or we should should we be expecting more from them Wow, that is kind of the question right now, I think. Uh, That's a very difficult question for me to answer because I think uh, this this event for EG was a little bit different in that when I've seen EG stumble in the past, it's generally about they'll have one or two series where their drafts will not be as great. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I've I've been on record as saying that I think PPD is – uh, the best drafter in the game right now, and sure. I think he's up there. You know, right now, Puppy is pretty clearly the best captain that there's ever been in mm-hmm. Dota. Um, just ahead of Zhao Eight, based on what he's done on in the last several months with this new secret squad. But I think, as a pure drafter, I think PPD is about as as good as we're ever going to see. Uh, still, they have series where their drafts maybe aren't as good, and the edges among top teams are very very small right now. This was not about that, though. Uh, this was just about EG, and I thought a similar thing, by the way, happened to Vici Gaming when they lost to Ehome uh, mm-hmm. on the penultimate day of the event. I thought EG made some very un-EG-like mistakes in both their series against Secret uh, and... Uh, yeah, I mean, that, that really, that series against Secret and, and, of course, against OG as well, they just had a bunch of situations where they had one kill turn into three or four. Mm-hmm. And that's just, that's not EG Dota. That's not something that you really ever see from them. And I think going into the tournament, there was a lot of concern about the resource distribution among Sumail and Arteezy because obviously mm-hmm. these are two of the two of the best young players statistically. They're the top two players to ever play the game in terms of gold and experience per minute. 
but they're players that that require a lot of space in very different ways. And the question is, you know, Universe, of course, is probably the best space creator in the game. Uh, Fear is probably the most versatile player that we've ever seen. And PPD, of course, brings a unique skill set to the table for reasons that we've already discussed. But the question is, we saw essentially the same execution errors bite them against Secret and against OG. I thought both of those series really ought to have been 2 O's. And I don't know. I I just... um, (laughs) I don't have a good answer for why exactly that happened. Yeah, absolutely. And and so like that kind of raises an, another interesting question with that I that I think about a lot when it comes to Dota, uh which is, you know, which factor is is more important and maybe it's maybe it fluctuates based on which which like phase of the meta game that we're in. But but which factor do you think is more important right now having that captain like a puppy or like a PPD uh who who understands the meta who understands like how this incredibly complex game actually fits together or is it that on-field talent like Samael and Arteezy? Well, I don't I don't think they're I I don't think they're it's a matter of either or. I mm-hmm. I think you have to have both. To be a top team right now, you you absolutely must have a top-tier drafter and you absolutely must have at least one or two players on your team that are just that are special that are playing at a different level than everybody else. And and interestingly enough, for example, for OG, uh, a lot has been made of Miracle. And and he is as, as high-ceiling a player as there is right now in terms of what he has a chance to do in his career. But if you ask me in terms of just what they did in Frankfurt, it was Moon and Crit that mm-hmm. were just the the absolute superstar performers for that team. I, I thought I've been on record as saying I thought Crit was the MVP of that entire tournament. I don't think he had a bad game. Hello. Oh hi. Hi Chris. I know so much more about Dota now. I don't. It's volatility. <laughs> <laughs> um all right. So uh let's see. I Okay, so here we go. Uh, designer notes. Um, this is a podcast that was initially hosted by Soren Johnson, but um, has also been Soren uh, Johnson, who you might not know who he is, but he, uh, yeah, but you've probably, yeah, you, you, his influence has probably uh, reverberated in your gaming world because he is the designer of Civilization Four and uh, also more recently offward off world trading company yes and he runs off word trading company is the <laughs> mobile app awkward trading company <laughs> um he he yes. uh yes he now in addition to uh running his studio mohawk games he also um runs this monthly interview podcast which does long form in-depth interviews with uh video game designers and related people uh he recently interviewed a board game designer for instance uh so on this episode which was the 13th episode of designer notes he interviewed jamie chang who's the studio head of clay entertainment the developer of don't starve mark of the ninja invisible ink shank and more so enjoy eats enjoy enjoy eats also developed by clay entertainment um but yeah here jamie shares some uh some design uh, insights about clay and their games nice i know we literally said uh during the mark of the ninja uh development we're again talking about new games 
And the title of the new game is Project Not Side-Scrolling. <laughs> okay. All right. So, yeah, it was like... The, 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 like we're done with side-scrolling. We're very, we did not want to be the side-scrolling company. We didn't want to be pigeonholed as the side-scrolling company. Right. And for a long time, we were pigeonholed as the Eats company, and then the Shank company, and then the side-scrolling company. And it's like, no, we need to be our own thing. <laughs> well, that, might, that might explain a comment I remember. You're going to have to remind me who is his name. He spoke at GDC last year about Don't Starve. Kevin. Yeah, he made a comment, like a sort of offhanded comment about Shank. He's like, he's an angry gentleman who goes from left to right. Like, that's basically how he summed up that game. And like, I was like, wow, okay. That's interesting. Um, yeah, <laughs> he was uh, he was not the biggest fan of that game. Which <laughs> that, is totally cool. I love it. That came across. It's super good. <laughs> yeah. All right, cool. Well, maybe then before we jump into the Invisible Link, maybe we should talk about Don't Starve then. Um, mm-hmm. Because that's that's another huge element for you guys. It was uh, amazing. Don't Starve was was a, a game jam game. Okay. And Kevin and Julian. Is that were... something you'd done a lot at that point? Or no, that was our first game jam. Oh wow! Okay, wow, good job. <laughs> yeah. So our first game jam uh, was uh, that Christmas mm-hmm. of. Pitching Ninja? I, I, you know, sometimes I forget the years now. Sure, yeah. um, but uh, basically we had uh, two days where it was like like 24th, 3rd and 24th of December and nobody was going to get any work done anyway. Yeah, sure. So on the 23rd and 24th, we're like, we'll just make... Whatever you want to do. Whatever you want to do. Yeah. Just do something. And so Kevin and Julian made this um, uh, Lost on an Island simulator. Uh-huh. Uh, and it was... That's definitely overstating what it is, because it was a fire, and then it used uh, Zelda assets, mm-hmm. and then uh, you you walked around with an axe, uh, and during the day you would go out and hunt pigs, yeah, anthropomorphized pigs actually, and then you would uh, kill them for their meat, and you come home, and then with the meat your your health bar would go up, yeah, and your health bar just slowly goes down, right, uh, and then at night they would chum try to eat you basically, yeah, and. Basically, it was how many nights can you survive? Yeah. How many days can you survive? And that was it. But it really got across the feeling of I'm going to starve to death. Right. And uh, I'm alone here and it's really creepy. That's yeah. how it came across. Then we didn't do anything with that project for a whole year. Okay. And just kind of, we went on to finish our other games. Um, and we got a, um, a deal that I can't really talk about. So, sure. uh, but we got a deal to do a game, right? Yeah. Uh, and uh, we ended up pitching Don't Starve for that game, right? Yeah. Uh, we ended up signing this exclusive deal with with Google on that, actually. Uh, and so what happened and ended up happening is uh, that was kind of like our... Here's Google. Here's so that's Google. Little, that's a little strange. Yeah, it is. It is strange. So, Don't Starve. I don't. I, I guess you never saw that Don't Starve actually first came out on the Chrome Web Store. I, I remember that, and I I remember probably unfairly dismissing it at the time because I'm like, what? It's, it's a web game. Uh, okay. Like I don't know. Like I, I, right. I, at that point, I put it in the category of a bunch of web games I'm that's not right. particularly interested in. Yeah. And it only like was sort of forced upon me later. It's like, well, what the heck is going on with this thing? <laughs> you know, like obviously. But yeah, I remember that it started there. So basically, it was like this chance to do something different. Yeah. We started in the in, in January, uh-huh. and it was supposed to ship in six months. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and the, my only requirement to them was, well, I guess two. One is you ship in six months, and the other is it has to be free to play. Yeah. 
and it didn't either. But <laughs> <laughs> um, but they actually did get one out in seven months, which was pretty darn impressive. Yeah. Actually, it was very very impressive that that that, that happened. Um, but because of its free to play roots, yeah, it was it's very very easy to create new content and don't starve it. So it was built to create content, right? Because you need to service that thing. And so that turned out to be extremely helpful. If your guy kept dying, which I assume was always part of the plan, or mm-hmm. if that was possible, how was it going to work as a free-to-play game? It's a really good question. <laughs> okay. It's a really, really good question. I can show you all sorts of design docs yeah. some other time, some mind maps of what we wanted to charge for. <laughs> Thanks. There are a lot of games that were people were trying to... I tried to bend some of my own. Uh, games tried to bend to work in free-to-play back then, and I think... <laughs> well, I mean, the idea is that, you know, I really wanted to get us out of this loop where we had to get publisher funding. Yeah, you wanted something that was ongoing. I needed... We needed something like that. When, yeah. uh, and that, that reasoning is still sound, you yeah. know? Uh, and in fact, at that time, we were getting all sorts of different small deals. I started a spreadsheet which were... You know, calculating how many royalties we were getting, not how many dollars we were getting, but right. specifically royalties, because we needed that number to go up in order to be independent. Yeah. And so, um, you know, that's why I'm like, we need to. This is a chance to try something different. Um, let's just go for it. So we had Mark of the Ninja going, and that was the bread and butter. That was what was making the money for the company. Right. And then we had Don't Starve, which was like, we can try something crazy. Yeah. Let's just do something, what we think could work, and don't worry about what the market says currently. Let's just do the thing that we think might work. Right. And to me, I thought the thing that would work is free-to-play. Yeah. Uh, they when thought you, differently. <laughs> when you thought, when you, who's they? <laughs> they being Kevin and, <laughs> okay. uh, and Julian and the rest of the team, basically. But they nominally agreed to the concept. Oh, yeah, well, because it was like, I either get to make this game or well, I don't get don't, to make yeah, this game. Well, well. You know, uh, and involved in there, but uh, <laughs> right. Um, when it was launched on the the Chrome Store, was it free to play at that point, or it was, was it free, free period, but not free to play? So, like, not 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 <laughs> microtransactions. There's no, no microtransactions. But basically, um, I did a ton of research on free to play, and I do believe that this research is what led, um, not is, is part of what led Don't Starve success. Sure, right? Like all the pieces came together. You know, there. The, the game team was genius. It's just, meanwhile, Kevin was doing his best to subvert uh, the free to play <laughs> of the game. And he was. Were you aware of this? Or? Oh yeah, we we were talking about it all the time. Yeah, and it's like okay. I'm trying to subvert you right now, <laughs> right? I'm building this thing, so it's really hard. And I'm like, well, if you do it this way, <laughs> right? And, and then we have these like giant discussions on how it might work. And instead of play, uh, you know, uh, pay to win, we were trying win to pay. <laughs> so, you know, and things like that, it was just totally awesome. <laughs> and we did it for free, um, just so that we could get feedback. Sure. And yeah. it was on Chrome Web Store, so nobody knew about it. <laughs> right. Which is the best. We didn't want it. people to know about yeah. it. We just wanted people to play. And then we started seeing people were playing way longer than we expected. What's next, Chris? Uh, what's next and what is last is... Uh, the Idol Book Club. Wow, I used to be on that podcast. I that's true. I'm not anymore, I bet. <laughs> you can be if you want to be. Maybe. I recall you were on some of the I was before, on I was on I, some of them. Yeah. So this is a the Idol Book Club was a podcast that we ran for about a year from 20, 2012, 2012 2013. 2013. Yeah. yeah. Um which uh 
was a very uh, it's, it's exactly what it sounded like. Basically, it was a book club format podcast in which we chose a book, uh, almost I mean, entirely fiction, I guess. And uh, each month we would announce it in advance, and then we would discuss the book on the podcast, and we would read comments from uh, listeners, and um, uh, it was. And People, then and then announce the next month's book. and announce the next month's book right and uh, we really liked doing it and it went well but we um, we kind of dropped the ball and it fell by the wayside and we've been trying to think of a way to bring it back sustainably so that we can keep it going uh, without the sort of I guess um, like barriers that were like scheduling barriers and so on that were that were. Uh, creating a challenge initially and we're doing that now and so i am bringing the podcast back with sarah argadale um who is my fiance uh and we are going to be announcing our first book actually probably probably by the time you were hearing this uh we already will have announced that our first book is fates and furies by lauren groff uh it's available in paperback ebooks everything so uh, if you want to pick that up and read it along with us and then uh, participate in the discussion, you can do that starting now. But to ease into that, we released an uh, an initial episode where Sarah and I just talk about a couple books we've been reading recently. And here is Sarah's uh, kind of discussion or Sarah's chat about The Secret History by Donna Tart. But something that I will talk about that I, I read just before the days of abandonment was called The Secret History by oh, yeah. Donna Tart. Yeah. And so Donna Tart, many people probably will know as the author of The Goldfinch, which came out last year. Or maybe the year before. And and won a bunch of awards. That's not something that I've read yet. Uh, but I, I plan on it after having read The Secret History, which I believe was her first novel. Mm-hmm. So... This is a book that I had tried to read previously and got about 50 pages in and gave up on, I think, a year ago. I I very oddly had the exact same experience by complete coincidence, actually, um, I think maybe two years ago. Uh, well, it was the copy of the book that that you ended up reading. Yeah, was well, your I, your copy of the book is what I read. My copy of the book is not mine. It was loaned right. to us by a mutual friend. Anyway, <laughs> none of that matters. So, so why did you end up? Uh, what what was it about the book that really stuck with you this time and made you see it to the end? Because as I recall, you read this almost in one shot and really loved it a lot. So, what why, what was so great about it? Well, what is this book even? <laughs> this book is about a group of college students who are at school in a very small liberal arts college in in Vermont. So it's like Middlebury, Middlebury or Amherst, some uh, Wesleyan, one of those sure. schools. And the main characters from Northern California from a lower middle class family who ends up in this elite, tiny Ivy League-esque school with a bunch of fairly wealthy students. So in part, it's about his experience coming from this completely different background. But more particularly, it's about his relationship with these four other students who are all majoring in ancient Greek together. And each of the students have has their own kind of 
particular personalities that make them feel very they both feel very otherworldly but also immediately identifiable identifiable as people who you probably have met in real life especially if you have gone through college uh, and especially if you've been to a smaller college so i went to William and Mary in Virginia, which is a small-ish size liberal arts school. It's not in New England, so it, it doesn't have the kind of snowy mm-hmm. emptiness that New England does at certain times of year. But it, it does have that very close com- community feeling that the secret history captures really well because William and Mary is in Williamsburg and is fairly isolated from all other areas. And so I... I liked being put back into that mindset, but more broadly, I I really liked this book because it is so beautifully written about being 21 years old and still being a child in many ways, but also reaching adulthood, but not having the, yet having the experience or the, just the capability of handling what that means Mm -hmm. and i think this book very beautifully and sadly captures what that transition period is like for young people with some kind of crazy plot narratives that never feel crazy even though if i were to just give you a bullet list right it it would seem ridiculous Mm -hmm. um i mean the book opens with the admission that a murder has happened and then through the through the story you find out what the actual background to this murder is but you know if i were just to say oh this this book is about a murder that these college students commit, you would say, that sounds outrageous. <laughs> <laughs> I never committed a murder in college. Well, uh, <laughs> you clearly have not spent enough time watching the Shonda Rhimes program, How to Get Away with Murder. That's true. About college students and murder. Well, they're law students. So, so if they're... you're accustomed to that, then this would seem completely uh, No, because they're older. They're in graduate school. That's true. So that's, that's I guess acceptable. I you have spent some time watching this also. <laughs> I've watched way too much of that show. Um, it's, the book really isn't about that though, right? It's, it's about that. That's the kind of frame framing model for the story or that is the story. Right. But it, it's interesting in the actual details of these students and the way that she describes them, the way that she describes Vermont as feeling like this Mm -hmm. otherworldly place. And that's the way that college can feel when you. So if, if I went to a, I went to UC Berkeley, which is a 30,000 student public school will -hmm. will i relate to (laughs) these people do you think i mean you should be able to if you can relate to characters who are not ever one murdering law students oh right yeah they're not law students they're (laughs) ancient greek students oh okay I, I I mean, obviously, people who did not go to a small liberal arts school will be able to get something out of this this book i think even if you didn't go to college you will be able to relate to, again, this idea of being on the cusp of maturity, yeah, right. but still being incredibly immature and and being convinced of the fact that you know everything, right. yeah, yeah. but really painfully, mm-hmm. very painfully not that, knowing. That reminds me of, um, the, at least to your description of it, 
reminds me in some ways of the marriage plot by Jeffrey Eugenides. Yeah, I was thinking that, about that book that a I lot. Loved, and I think you're a little more mixed on. Right. But but yeah, that's another book about that. The characters sound like they're drawn maybe from the same pool of mm-hmm. sorts of people and is also about being in that moment of right. pseudo adulthood where you are legally and technically an adult. Um, and in many ways have the capacities adults have, mm-hmm. but also have so much of your ways of processing things rooted in adolescence. Right. Well, and specifically those two books deal with not only people who are on this weird dividing age line, but also who come from relative privilege mm. and have yeah. th- these kind of this, this idea that they are privileged and, and they've grown up with relatively easy lives and so they Mm -hmm. feel even more entitled to now i am an adult but in in some ways they're even more childish than their less privileged peers because they've had less to confront right and and i think both books deal with that spectacularly my problem with the marriage plot is is more that i think that eugenides um is it eugenides or eugenides i've always heard it pronounced eugenides who knows is is that he I think his his language is much more literal than what is in the secret history. The secret history feels like it could have been written in the 19th century. It it has this very beautiful what I guess people would describe as lyrical mm. prose that is not always my favorite thing, but Donna Tart and definitely is not typically a component of modern fiction, right? At least, uh, well, I mean, the, she can find modern fiction that is anything. There, but I would say that's less in fashion currently. I don't know. I, I feel like there have been a lot of big novels over the recent years that kind of trade in this, like The Luminaries mm-hmm. by Eleanor Catton, which came out the same year. I believe as the goldfinch did definitely does have this kind okay. of old feeling style of writing. And that book, you know, is also set in the 1800s. So that might help and, with, with that. But you think it works for the secret history and doesn't feel archaic. Right. It, it kind of, it, it makes it hard to completely place what year the book is supposed to be set in, which makes it even more interesting. And again, I keep using this world, but other, other worldly, feeling because it's not quite clear and you know what's happening in vermont because they say vermont but the the school is obviously a fictional school and no one ever says the the exact time that all of this is happening mm-hmm. in and everything just feels kind of gauzy in that way i should probably also go back and read it and then finally return the copy of the book that we have to the person <laughs> who actually owns it. Uh, so, so there's some, there is, uh, I guess, just some book discussion to sort of tie this, people over, yeah, to, and to and to get us in the in the mode of uh, of this well, sort of thing. To exercise our book brain. Yeah, that's true. We exercise our book brain. We put our book brain through that ringer uh-huh. uh, to mix more metaphors. Maybe I'll read a book. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you will, Jake. I didn't always, even when I was on the podcast last time. So I yeah. no guarantees. Yeah, well, uh, all right. So that was uh, that was a lot of content. Against all odds, like, we host all that content now. Um, content, so, content. I know it's it's the, what the world is now. Um, so just to to recap, I guess that was three moves ahead, Idle Weekend, Terminal Seven, Esports Today designer notes and the idle book club. And you can find all of these shows 
at idlethumbs.net slash shows. They're all on iTunes. Um, they're all on SoundCloud, which is where they're hosted. Um, Stitcher. They're all, you know, Whatever. they're, they're, they're all podcasts. They're podcasts. You can find them. So, you could find them. I mean, you know. Uh, yeah. So, man. We did it, Chris. We, 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 we decided instead of doing a regular episode of Idle Thumbs, we would do one that seems really simple but is going to be a huge pain in the ass <laughs> to edit uh, and is going to ruin our lives anyway. Ah, cheers, Jake. Hey. Cheers, yes. Uh, I can't read. <gasps> Yep. Well, Happy New Year. Happy Dishonored New Year. Oh. Where can I find all these great shows, Chris? <laughs> <laughs> what? I wanted to know. Where are these shows located on the internet? They're at idlethumbs.net slash shows. Man. Yeah. What? How much off do I get if I use that URL to listen to these podcasts? Yeah, 100% off. Wow. Yep. Podcasts are free. Yep. Too bad that that's true. <laughs> Should old acquaintance be forgot and never brought to mind? Should old acquaintance Oh, oh.